Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. This week we're talking documentary, we're talking postcards from the 48%. Welcome director David Nicholas Wilkinson. Hello. Hello. Thanks now, for having me. You're welcome, you're welcome. Now... We're uh, we're talking on um, Sunday, the twenty third of September, which is a uh, which is fast approaching release date for your documentary. So, wh- wh- when when's when's postcards from the forty eight percent going to be available? Well, it's it's done a, a cinema run. I'm doing one of the final uh, screenings uh, tonight in Tunbridge Wells, of all places. Okay, but it it goes online and on DVD and. Uh, on the 1st of October. Okay, cool. Now, it'd probably be worth saying, I mean, there's a clue in the title, but do you want to give a brief synopsis as to what your documentary is about? It's about the um, EU referendum, which uh, 52% of the electorate, which represented 17 million people out of a population of 65 million, voted to leave the EU and those of us that did not vote um, accounted for 48% of the electorate. And my film is about all of us who want to remain part of the EU, why we want to remain, and to also go through all the sort of relevant points. I've made it for the other 27 EU member states mm. um, because I was at the Galway Film Flower just after uh, the uh, election or referendum, uh, and th- that's a very prestigious film event with um, filmmakers and executives coming from all over, almost every single EU member state and from North America. Mm. And all of them said to me, I mean, it's extraordinary, and these are people in the media, and they said, why did all of you Brits vote to leave the EU? And I said, but I didn't, and, and neither did, you know, over 16 million other of us. Mm. And I thought if people in the media have got from their own media that it was a landslide victory, I need to put them right. Mm. And it, it was disappointing. That, I mean, a lot of the, the other Europeans were quite hurt by the fact that Britain had a special relationship within the EU. We had better terms than anyone else. 
And the British film industry has benefited enormously uh, by being part of the uh, EU, something that we will suffer uh, on, on many aspects um, if we leave. So I felt I, you know, I, I was very angry about the results and it was all milling around in my mind about what to do. And, uh, so I thought I'll, all I can do really is, is make a film about it. And what was really interesting is that I thought others would do it. I thought somebody like Nick Broomfield or, um, uh, you know, but, Jerry Rothwell, who I just made a, a film with Jerry called How to Change the World. I was one of many executive producers, which was a feature length documentary about uh, the start of Greenpeace. Mm. And funnily enough, I was at uh, the Grierson Awards with him where we actually won the award. And I asked him if he was doing anything and he said no. And because the great and the good of the British film industry is there, I went round the entire room saying, are you or anybody else making a documentary about the whole Brexit vote from the point of view of the 48%? And to my surprise, nobody was. Most of them said, oh, I wouldn't touch that, you know, with a barge pole. Uh, and others said, no, you know, it's not, it's not our area. So on that day in uh, November 2016, that's when I really started. It's interesting you, you, that you were kind of in sort of a, a sort of seat of in in the EU, looking around at other Europeans, sort of asking you. I was I was in um, I was in Norway, ironically, given that was used as a as an example. The week the week or so before the vote took place, when sadly Joe Cox got murdered on the street, and I was at a I was at Sources Two, which is a European wide script development program. So I was surrounded, I was in Norway with Swiss, Italian, Spanish, French, Belgian, Dutch, you know. And it was interesting what you, you, like, I was the only Brit that was there. And so the question they were asking me was, what's going on? Because obviously it was before the vote. And then while I was there, the MP got killed. And it was, it was, it was, it, 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 if it was, it felt like, it felt like Britain was cutting its nose off to spite its face then. You know, even when it was just in the abstract before the vote had took place, and ever since it felt like we felt like two years of, 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 of practicing isolation almost. Yes, I mean the the problem with we have here in Britain is that we are uh, a former empire in decline, and we've been in decline for many years. You know, like the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, and so on, you know, the Egyptians. And we've been in this um, downward spiral, I suppose, since Ireland was the first to leave the British Empire. Mm. And it's been kind of eroded. And there's a sort of nostalgia for that. I mean, the British Empire was a ruthless one. And people seem to think it was the good old days. You know, we made huge sums of money on slavery. Uh, and even after we abolished slavery, people sort of seem to think that, you know, um, we had nothing to do with it after that. Well, we did because um, we benefited greatly when the Americans had slavery from cheap cotton. And that's the whole of the, you know, Lancashire cotton mills were built on on that um, cheap cotton uh, produced by slaves in America. Mm. And 
it's a sort of harking back to something I don't know what they think it is. But it and and I think there's a huge jealousy. I don't go into this in my film, but there's a huge jealousy on a certain number of people about Germany. You know, they lost the war and now they're more powerful and they're richer than us. And that angers a lot of people. And we feel or that there are people here that feel that we should be the top dog, that we are somehow superior to everybody else in Europe. And we are actually have an enormous, you know, say within Europe. It really is us, uh, the, the French and the Germans who kind of lead a lot of what goes forward. But we're not happy with that. Certain politicians, we want it all. And, you know, if Brexit happens, then I see that what could be a consequence of it is the, you know, United Kingdom will break up. I can't see that Scotland will want to remain part of the union. The Scots voted to stay part of the EU. There was a referendum in Scotland a few years ago and of whether they wanted to stay part of the union or not. And one of the deciding factors, possibly the most important deciding factor with a large percentage of the electorate, was the fact that David Cameron and George Osborne kept going on and on about it, saying, if you leave the United Kingdom, you'll no longer be part of the EU. And look at all the marvellous things the EU has done for Scotland. And it did. I mean, at a time... When, um, you know, Margaret Thatcher was in power and the, um, you know, heavy industries, shipbuilding and steel and what have you in uh, Scotland were declining. Uh, the government from Westminster did very little to help uh, Scotland revive its, you know, infrastructure and look into new industries. Uh, and it was the EU that pumped, you know, very large amounts of money in there. And people in Scotland remember that. You can still see buildings and plaques and walls that have that EU flag on them. They're very faded, but they're still there. And people remember um, how important um, you know, the EU was for that rebirth. You, you speak to a lot of... I guess, I guess some, some very high profile celebrities within, within the film industry and politics. So logistically, how, as, as the director of the film, how, how do you, how do you go about that? Is it, is it all about chance or is it you nailing people down so that you make sure you get them? Um, it's a very, that's a, yes, that's interesting. It's what I love about documentaries because I come from a, um, a fiction background. I started as an actor and, and, um, you know, acted for 10 years and I did 40 odd productions, films, television uh, and stage. Uh, and so everything is there. It's all scripted. And you unless you're an idiot, you don't change that script. I mean, some actors, some directors. I did make one film where it, it was changed as we were going along and it was a disaster. Um, you know, it was a very good screenwriter and based on a best selling book. And it was f such folly to do that. So that's a very interesting, very hard for me to do because that's in my DNA. It goes back to since I was you know, 14 years old and started as a professional in this business. So uh, it, that strange evolving uh, process with the documentary is um, 
slightly worries me, but I also find, you know, exciting. And that is I set off with a sort of script, a skeleton script of what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And um, that was I was rather hoping to raise all my money from crowdfunding because uh, somebody would raised £70,000 to raise, uh, to put up posters in London for two weeks saying stop Brexit. And, you know, I live in London and I never saw those. And I thought and that was a filmmaker extraordinary that raised that money. And I thought if they can raise £70,000 for, for posters, I, I could raise decent money for a film. So originally my film was going to be... Um, really ordinary members of the 48%. I wasn't really going to have very many well-known people in there. And I started off filming and I have a team, particularly Don McVeigh, who's my uh, DOP mm. and has worked with me before. Um, I asked him originally how much he would want. And when he found out what he was about, he said, look, let's just start filming. I don't want any money. And so it started to move along, but I obviously needed money. So I, I, hoped to raise £30,000 with a stretch uh, budget of 165000 And I was only able to raise 21000 And when it became apparent that I had to go and borrow some money, and then later I would get some investment in, mm. uh, in order to make your project viable, I had to fall back on the well-known people. Uh, and I'd also originally intended to film over um, the spring and summer of 2017. So I was uh, expecting to finish it in October of last year. And so it would have been different and much more condensed. And I was going to go to places like Greenland. Greenland was the is the only EU uh, country that voted to leave. And they've been trying ever since to get back in. They're, they're fortunate because they're part of in a strange relationship with Denmark. So they do have a sort of an affiliation. Mm. Uh, and I was going to film in Gibraltar, which was the largest area to, to vote uh, remain. Uh, but with a lack of money and, you know, having to fit things in around my crew's availability, um, obviously, uh, I, I really stretched the production period. So and I also found a lot of the people in the 48 percent, the ordinary people, were not as articulate. They, they all had just one or two issues. And um, it, it was that thing, the, you know, basically it's a talking head documentary. Yeah. Um, and I needed uh, people who were very, very um, knowledgeable to put forward the case. Um, so I then got at somebody called Professor uh, A.C. Grayling. Um, and once I'd got him, it started to make it um, easier. But the, the, a lot of politicians were very, very wary. And the very interesting thing is, it's a lot of politicians and senior people. We, you know, all of us, and I assume most of the people listening to this, we, uh, our lives are film. We watch films. We talk about films. It's it's what we do. And uh they don't understand film. They have no concept of what a film can do. And so very senior politicians, I better not name them, um, in the film uh, were saying, David, if, if you haven't got television for this, we, we don't understand. If you haven't got television, what are you going to do with it? And I said, well, I'm going to put it in the cinema. And they went, really? <laughs> um, you know, 
a documentary in the cinema. I mean, will anybody go and see it? And I said, well, it, it's there are. I said, in this UK alone, there are about 150 documentaries a year released. Really? God, I've never seen one. And these are people who are working all the time. So, you know, um, they often are working all morning in their office and Parliament usually starts around two o'clock. And, you know, they're often working till midnight. Or if they do have the evening off, they're going to dinners and political <coughs> meetings. So if they watch a film, which is very rare, it's some kind of action movie or rom-com that, that takes them away from the day-to-day -day life that they're doing. Mm. So that did become a real problem. Um, but then there was something called the convention, which was a whole group of people who were getting together to talk about the impact because there wasn't really a debate anywhere. And uh, so I, I grabbed people there. And then once I Nick Clegg, I'd been trying to get hold of for about – uh, three or four months, and he, you know, former deputy prime minister of the UK, former leader of the uh, Lib Dems, mm. and he was the only one who really got it and understood it. It was just a matter of he was so busy. Do, do you have to draw a line in terms of we can't get them, um, or is it is it is it important yes, that you decide? You, you do draw a line. I mean, as I say, the convention was the 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 event that turned it around for me. I'd been filming for about five months, and mm. I had. So I'd had a group of people I was going to follow through the film. And I had a certain amount of the narrative told by uh, A.C. Grayling. Mm. But because the, you're absolutely right, the, the diary problem was that once the convention happened. So while I was there, I got, as I said, Nick Clegg. I got Alistair Campbell. I got Ian McEwan. I got Will Hutton. Um, I got. Baroness Kennedy, Helena Kennedy, who's mm. one of the cleverest people in the country. I got Joan Bakewell there. Um, and so they then added to the narrative I was telling. So the more I was going along, um, the more I was beginning to structure the story. I had a number of questions I would ask people. And then once they were answered, I didn't need them anybody else to answer those. Does, does, does the fact that when you say, if you're phoning up a new person, trying to contact a new person and you've already got Joan Bakewell, Ian McEwan and so on and so forth. When you say they've already been on, is, is, is that often quite the tipping point to get somebody who you've not yes. been able to get because they go, yes. well, I want to be in that gang as well. Um, Vince Cable, who was, is, is the head of the Lib Dems and very, very busy. I tried to contact his office. He's, he's a um, MP in the next constituency of mine. So it's yeah. very easy for me to communicate with them. But they, for whatever reason, didn't get back to me. And finally, somebody who's in the film, this was quite late on. Mm. And this person in the film, he said, well, he's my MP. I'll get him for a meeting and you come and sit in on it. <laughs> and they had their meeting and I was there for about 15 minutes. And Vince said, um, sorry, who are you? What, what, what have you got to do with this? And Kevin, who was the person holding it, said, well, this is David and he's making a feature length documentary. I then sort of told him what I was doing and who was in it. And Vince just looked at me and smiled and he said, I've got to be in this, haven't I? <laughs> so that was it. But by then, I'd, I, there wasn't much I wanted to ask Vince because I'd already got other people doing it. And because of the long, drawn out um, process, uh, I'd already started editing. And here was a funny thing. 
somebody who's in my film, the, a man who was the very first person I filmed, yeah. rang up and he said, I've got this person I know called Michael. And, you know, he's retired now and um, he's done a bit of editing and he would like to. He's so impassionate. His wife's German and he's, you know, he's in his 80s and he but he'd like to work on your film. And Oliver didn't sell it to me very well. And I thought, mm, this sounds a bit, you know, I thought it's going to be some school teacher who's done a bit of editing of school movies in their part because that's usually what i have when people say this so i've got a friend who's done a bit of this yeah 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 so i rang up uh this michael i thought i'll you know it's it's polite to do it and mm. i started talking to him and i thought hang on a minute this guy really knows what he's talking about <laughs> and i said michael, excuse me i said um what's your second name? I haven't been given your second name. And he said, it's my, he's a very humble man, very quietly spoken. And he said, it's Bradsell. So I'm busy chatting to him like I am with you. And I'm looking up on IMDB, Michael Bradsell. And I only find he has 55 major movie credits. Um, he, um, some of the greatest British films of all time, he's edited. He, all of Ken Russell's important films, um, you know, word. like the, the devils and women in love. He yeah. edited. He he's the only editor. There was a, a list of the 50 greatest documentaries of all time compiled by Oscar winning documentary directors and major film critics from all around the world. The BFI put it together. Yeah. And Michael is the only editor who has two films in that 50 list. Mm. So I was over the moon. So he came on. But because he's old and um, he's having you know, problems with one of his eyes uh, and he had a computer, an Apple, which was 12 years old. And that's what he was editing on. Mm. So he and so we had to compress the, the <coughs> images. Um, so he was able to do that. But he started on it. And um uh, then I got other editors to pick up. So it was it was wonderful as a filmmaker. And this is the second time I've done this. I did this with the first film, which was the first documentary I directed. Again, feature length for the cinema. And it, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do it. If somebody comes to me and said, here, David, you've got a lot of money. We want you to f entirely film it and then edit it all when you've finished. Because for me, the... Uh, filming, editing, filming, editing process was wonderful because it, it focused my mind on the structure I was taking. And um, it, it really helped working with the editor because I was doing so much of it. I'm, you know, I'm not only the director, I'm the producer, mm -hmm. I'm uh, the presenter. Uh, I co-write it and I started off writing for the first six months on my own. Uh, I'm also the distributor. I also, because I borrowed money, I'm, you know, financier of it. So um, with all these multiple roles, as you, you know, I, and I see it with a lot of other filmmakers, you can get bogged down into your own vision. And I was doing it. I decided wrongly to tell the story chronologically from how I filmed it, because events were literally changing every week. Yeah. At the moment, changing every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought the only way I can do that is by sticking to this contiguous kind of route. 
Um, and when the second editor came in, because I, I then had a deadline uh, to finish, uh, John Walker, John sort of said, look, I want to take what you and Michael have edited. Uh, and by this time, we'd, I don't know, seven or eight weeks or something. Yeah. And, and I'd done a lot of paper editing. Paper editing with my co-writer, Emlyn Price, was immensely useful. In the end, we shot 67 hours worth of footage. But I found that more important than anything else because we determined what... Can I, can I ask just, just, just that terminology there? So paper, oh. paper editing for a documentary, is that a bit like storyboarding is for shooting a film? It's like... You... That's... Yes. I mean, I, I've never... That's a very good comparison i've never sorted that before but it's exactly what it is so what we did we took these i mean we have people in the film where i shot them for a one and a half hours worth of interview yeah and i've taken just three minutes from it and that was the issue with this is it's so complex it's so um you know it's like a spider's web almost of different subjects mm. that we could have covered um deciding what to what to take out was the most important thing and that all happened at the paper edit it's almost like chasing the wind isn't it with a, with a with a sort of live you know your your initial instigation of this was i need to do this so people know that there is another view than britain voting yes. to leave the eu there is a view that is people didn't want to so that's that's your starting point and then as you're doing this the news agenda is developing it's a roller coaster of Largely downs, but I suppose for some of the leave people, they might think there was was some ups. But as far as I'm not, I've not, I don't remember many so far apart from the initial winning the referendum. Um, but for you, for you going through that process, and obviously going into a documentary, directors must have a kind of preconception of what they're going to find out. Um, what for you was the no, most... No, I mean, I, yes and no. I mean, I think that's very important. I learned that from the first film. I mean, the first film was something that, you know, took me 33 years to make. Uh, no, I don't, I, don't, 30... I don't mean that you sort of second guess it, but there's, there's a certain element of you, you, you have a view, which is why you're making this film. And obviously it's, a very, it's, yes. it's, it's something you feel strongly about. So all I was going to say was, in terms of then the people you spoke to, what, what, what kind of, what did, what did you learn about the uh, about po about postcards from that forty eight percent that you didn't appreciate before making the film. Oh, uh, a lot. I mean, you know, I, obviously I was researching it, but I, I think most people who voted, whether they voted remain or leave, they voted on just one or two issues, mm. and so there's lots of things. I, I go into the fact in much greater detail um, about the fact that the. Um, vote was only ever advisory. It was mm. never mandating. So um, that's kind of very important because uh, somewhere along the line, um, the MPs ignored the sovereignty, something that people are fighting for of, all the time, you know, the sovereignty of Parliament, and they just decided to take us out. Um, and that wasn't the case. In, if you go back to Hansard and you read it, what was all... Uh, it was how it was all discussed and worked out is that the vote was then going to be discussed about MPs about what shall they do. What was what was what was a, what was a surprising revelation for you to, to, to uncover through the process of making the film? God, you um, take me by surprise. Uh, <laughs> I, I, 
don't know. I can't think of the top of my head. Uh, what's interesting in this, I've, I've, the film is shown in 50 UK cinemas and I've done Q&As in just over 40 of them. Mm. And every and I've done lots of Q&As for films that I've either directed or produced or just distributed. Mm. And I'm often the, the chair when I take an actor or director around. And with a fiction and to some extent other documentaries, you get roughly... 10 or 15 questions which are the same in every single Q&A you do. With this one what's taken me uh, by surprise is the fact that in every single Q&A I get a raft of questions I've never been asked before and and that's the sort of complex of you know the, the, the problem in making this is that I would constantly shift the sand of what what do I what do I include and what do I not include? Mm. I can't think off the top of my head of the most surprising aspect. Well, I, um, I guess not surprising maybe too strong a word, but in terms of maybe maybe when you, you, you're trying to reason with what's going on and why you don't believe it should be going on, was was there anybody who you spoke to that for for that for that moment you're going that's what I meant that's what I was trying to you know like they managed to say in a way that was clear and concise and and, and, uh, and made sense, something you'd been trying to wrestle with in terms of either the hope for staying in Europe or the frustration that we're trying to leave it? Um, yeah, uh, yes. I mean, there, there were little things, things that I hadn't... Obviously, you, you, you're learning, you do your research and you so you start to know an awful lot. But there were little things that, you know, first thing that I, I can think of is that in the interview with Nick Clegg, um, he pointed out something I wasn't aware of, is that arch Brexiteers, people who helped push this act through, like John Redwood and David Davis, they both said many, many times before it happened that the referendum vote should be in two parts. The first part that we had, whether we want to leave or stay and the second part is if we choose to leave should be we should have a vote once we know what the terms are and so many leavers use this thing of you you're all undemocratic they 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 just don't understand democracy democracy is not a moment in time Mm. it's something that evolves all the time that's why every five years in the united kingdom we have um, parliamentary elections to to say, do we want to stay with this group of people or do we want new people in? And that should be the same with the referendum. So, you know, we voted based on lots of different points. Even the people on the leave and remain sites didn't know what we were doing. I mean, many leavers have said to me, um, everybody knew when they voted that we were going to leave the customs union and the, and, and the single market. Well, they didn't because there were people on the leave side who said, oh, no, we're, we're not advocating. We're going to leave the EU, but we're not going to leave the single market. So the amount of contradictions that have gone on and continue to go on. And, uh, you know, what I try to do in the film is is to take the facts. And the very interesting thing is, is that all the right wing press have totally ignored the film. It's the first time I've been involved in the distribution of 120 films, of which, you know, for 20 years, apart from Alex Gibney's documentary Zero Days, all I've released are British and Irish films. Mm. So I always get the 
uh, and reviewing either the Sun, the Express, or the Telegraph and the Mail. This is the first time I can think of that all four of them who are all pro-Brexit have not even asked for a review copy of the film. And that tells me that they're scared of it because they know that they could say David Wilkinson's terrible director and you know why did he get Bob Geldof in it because he's Irish you know um, a number of sort of superficial things they could say but to actually destroy the film which they would have to do for to coincide with their papers editorial they'd have to take apart the facts and that's the one thing that they couldn't do and I've had lots of leavers have come to see the film and they've written on IMDB and things and that's what none of them have done they can't take away one person has absolutely lied and said I'd said something about Stoke-on-Trent in the film that Stoke-on-Trent could only get out of the mess it's in because of the with help from the EU. I say nothing of the kind. Um, but he, he, that person could not take anything else. That's the only thing he could find um, to, to criticise it. And that's been the most interesting thing for me. I, I did expect a number of people on the right to sort of say, well, this is wrong and that's wrong and argue it. But the very fact that they haven't done that tells me an awful lot, you know. So, David, what was, what was the advantages for you, you know, being a distributor as well as the producer and director of a film? Uh, I think if I'd not been the distributor, the film would have never got released. And it... it it has a huge advantage. I mean, I'm a great believer in people should become their own distributors, mm. particularly in their own territory. Right. And I think this is a very good example of why this should happen is what happened. Most people, they make their documentary and then they take it to um, uh, go and find a sales agent or they go to film festivals and then the sales agent will show it to other people. And, so between finishing the film and the film coming out in the cinema could be six months up to a year. And, you know, it's particularly if it's topical, then it becomes, you know, very, you know, yesterday's news, really. Mm. And what I could do, and it helps that I'm also a very established distributor, is that I showed an early cut. I wanted to launch this on the second anniversary of the EU vote, which happened to coincide with the Edinburgh Film Festival. So I was able to show them um, uh, uh, not even a fine cut, but a rough cut and said, this is roughly it. And they, they would said, OK, we'll take it. And then I was able to take that cut and show it to cinemas and start booking it in. My very first cinema I got was home in Manchester, though, to be honest, uh, the booker there, Jason Woods, he agreed to take it before he ever saw anything. Oh, um, and it did, become, it did become a problem getting other cinemas. But it's that fact that I can then get into my car and go and do the Q&As. And the Q&As are very important. But if a distributor had taken it on, the amount of return that they've had, even though it's been in you know 50 cinemas in the UK, um, would not have covered... Um, their basic costs, very basic costs, let alone giving them a fee for their overhead and their staff. 
And I would have had to, you know, fund it. Well, I've done it anyway because I'm a distributor, but I'd have had to fund it, the, the touring around myself, which can be very expensive. Mm. So that's a huge advantage. So I, I have instantly hit the time. So I knew I wanted the film to come out in the summer of uh, this year, 2018, back in around about the summer of last year. I had a, an inkling that things were going to change. I kind of knew it was going to come to a head then. And it's worked beautifully. So, you know, the um, online launch, which is where most people will see it, um, uh, comes just when everything, the debate is really ratched up to a very high level. Couldn't have done that if I was just a, a, a filmmaker because a distributor can't work that fast because they only once they've got the film, even if you approach a distributor direct when you finish the film and no distributor on the whole will commit to a film until it's finished. Right. Okay. So I didn't I didn't finish it till May. So if a distributor then had seen it and then they'd committed it, they've got lots of other films coming out. So they couldn't have put it out in July um, because they can't work that quickly. Um, and because I knew I'd got it, I could start the campaign back in March because you need at least four months running. And most distributors have so many films in their schedules that I talked to another distributor, a very good friend of mine. And he said, well, if I'd taken it, you know, there's going to be a seven month delay. So it wouldn't have come out till 2019. So I think that more and more in the future, I think that filmmakers um, should contemplate being their own distributor um, before they start within their own territory. It's very hard to do it in any other territories, but it, it's it pays off. It's hard learning curve, but it pays so many dividends. And you can go and find a booker like Martin Myers or somebody to work on your behalf, booking it into the cinemas, uh, which is you know the hard bit. But you would then take control of the whole marketing and the release date. And that's very important. And I think it's what happens is that um, I've worked with so many filmmakers in the past. The majority of the films that I've released have come from the filmmakers, not the sales agents. And those filmmakers genuinely believe that their film is so good that they won't need to distribute it themselves because they're going to put it out and people will watch it and they'll go, yeah, and there'll be a bidding war. <laughs> and what happened, it doesn't happen like that. So uh, a distributor never rarely instantly decides on the film. If they don't like it, they'll instantly decide. But if they think there's some mileage in it, they will talk it over with their team. And what they won't tell you, many of them will talk it over with the exhibitors. And so that's going to take two or three months and, and they could come back with a no. Fine if they come back with a yes. And then what happens? You've got to go to someone else because it's very dangerous if you talk to too many people at the same time because everybody finds out. Mm. And then the next distributor is interested and they then find out that another distributor has been talking to exhibitors about it. So that then they will probably instantly reject it on that. And, and so you go through this process and many, many times I've released a film two years after it was finished and that then does become very difficult because people can now go and when I started doing it with say the Brokering Boys which I released four years after it was finished the internet wasn't very popular I mean the, you know so I released it in 1999 yeah. very few people were on the internet IMDB had only just started 
So um, exhibitors couldn't find out that it was an old film. Now, when I talk to a cinema, they as I'm talking to them, they're looking at it on IMDb. That's where they go to first. And they can see all the details there. They'll go, David, this is a bit old. You know, we don't really want to take an old film. Um, so filmmakers need to think about that. And they need, you know, using a, um, a Brexit term uh, for Northern Ireland, they need a backstop. They need uh, a plan in place if Lionsgate or Studio Canal or E1 don't take it. No, and it's, a, it's, it's the biggest flaw with every filmmaker I ever meet is they never think about the backstop. What will happen if I don't get distribution? The, 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 fourth, the idea of the fourth um, estate seems to have dissolved in the last decade and I didn't notice and then you you begin to see how people are held account in the media and, and they're not. They're just allowed to say what they want and it doesn't matter whether or not it's just what they believe or what's, what might be based on any factual information or accurate trend that's going to be ahead of us. People can just say, yes, it is, when they don't know anything about it at all and nobody says, you're basing that on what? Or And that's been continued. It hasn't, it hasn't, even when, even when, Elements of what was being, you know, obviously the big, a big, a big figure is the three hundred fifty million pound for the NHS. Yes, you know, and, which, and, and, and within twenty four hours of the of the referendum, that became well, that's up for discussion, obviously. So we went from being in in, in the space of twenty four hours, we went from a campaign that said you're going to get that to a discussion that that basically said well, no, you won't. Well, what is interesting is the very man who thought up that campaign. Um, has since said that even when they were announcing it, they knew that it was a lie, that they couldn't deliver on it. Wow. So that, you know, is fundamental to the whole core, is you listen to Brexiteers who say, we can't have a second vote, you know, be, you're undemocratic. I've had a very, very well-known actress said that to me, hmm. who, who's in the hard left, a great supporter of Jeremy Corbyn and is often on his campaigns. And she said, I believe in democracy. And, you know, we've the people have spoken bollocks as if the people can't speak again. You know, um, you know, once the facts are known and um, it's it's, you know, it nobody's sort of it's it's funny how people. I just you're absolutely right. It's emotion. You, you, you say this to people who voted leave and they dismiss it. You know, the fact is they've been caught out in a lie. That should be wrong. You know, people, you know, it's already been proven that they've spent too much money. Mm. They've broken the law spending and nobody's doing anything about it. And um, that's really extraordinary times we live in. We are being so far. I've not had anybody. I, I was hoping that I would have constructive criticism from people on the leave side to say, David, this is wrong and this is why it's wrong. And um, they haven't done that. And that's what is the real problem here is that they're continuing based upon this lie, on this sort of belief that this fantasy land um, will happen no matter what people. You know, there's this idiot, Owen Patterson. I mean, extraordinary. Man. Was it Liam Fox? I can't remember. Um, you know, they sort of 
blend into each other now. But when you've got businesses, I mean, you know, Jaguar Land Rover and BMW saying that the, there's going to be real problems if we leave and they don't understand business. And one of them, I forget which it was, accused the boss of one of these companies, the CEO, of lying and not just making it up. And then literally five hours later, BMW announced that um, that they were going to be uh, laying people off just after Brexit. I think it was BMW and Jaguar Land Rover are putting people on a three day week. It could be the other way around. I get confused now. Mm. But, um, you know, that shows how kind of serious it is. I mean, ironically, we went into the common market, as it was called then in the 70s, when we used to have three day weeks at a time when we would all be told when the lights would be going off. So we had to get candles. Uh, you know, each part of the country was told this. And here we are. It looks as if we could be leaving the EU and we're going back to three day weeks. And it, people forget. I don't put this in my film because there's just so much you can't put in. Mm. But the UK, this this nonsense that the UK was viable before the EU. We were known as the poor man of Europe. And Labour and Conservative used to deny this, used to say early on when others were, you know, the Americans would refer to as this or, you know, the Germans or someone. They say we're not the poor man of Europe. And then within, you know, a few years, they would go in their speeches and say, we are in, we are the poor man of Europe because. And, um, in 1976, the UK became, if you like, a third world country because we had to go to the IMF for a bailout. You know, mm. they gave us a great deal of money. And what got us out of that mess was the EU, the continuing prosperity we had being part of a union where we could trade with each other without barriers and restrictions and had freedom of movement. Well, look, I won't, uh, I won't ask you to predict where we're going to go by the end of this year, given there's lots of crucial decisions imminent on the horizon. But uh, I will say uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast to talk about postcards from the 48% and uh, look forward to the release. What's the date again, sorry, for the release? 1st of October. 1st of October. That's the DVD and, and VOD platforms. We'll put, and iTunes and all of those. Yeah, yeah. We'll, put, we'll, put, we'll put a link to your website in the show notes. But thank you very much for your time, David. Brilliant. Thank you. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. 